Hey everyone, and welcome to There and Back Again, an exploration of Tolkien's Middle-earth. I'm Alistair Stevens. In tonight's 60th session, we pick up our discussion of Chapter 5 and see how far we can make it into Chapter 6. Are we going to conclude the Battle of the Pelennor Fields? Well, no, probably not. We're probably not going to cover all of that this week, but we'll see what we can do, and if not, then we will, of course, conclude next time. But before we get to that, a quick discussion on the Witch King of Angmar. I received a few questions about the Lord of the Nazgul this last week, and I thought it would be... Uh, prudent at this point in our discussion of the return of the king to talk a little about the Witch King of Angmar because let's face it, we're not going to have that many more opportunities to discuss this fell figure in Tolkien's Legendarium, the right-hand man to Sauron here in Middle-earth. When the rings of power were forged and seized by Sauron in the Second Age, nine, as we know, were passed to the kings of mortal men doomed to die, the fate of all men, of course, to leave Arda behind and go on to their final reward. All men, save, well... I suppose, initially, purposefully, intentionally save the nine who were given the rings, but we'll see how that works out in due course. We don't know anything about these kings. We don't have names, canonical names for these kings. We don't really know that much about them. They were probably all of Numenorean descent. Certainly the witch king seems to be of Numenorean descent, but we don't know that much about him prior to the taking of the rings. So a little bit of timeline history first. The rings are forged around 1500 in the Second Age, with the three elven rings, untouched by Sauron's influence, being forged around 1590. Sauron then forges the One Ring himself in 1600 of the Second Age and seizes the others during the sack of Eregion in 1697. Presumably, the Nine are then given out to the kings of mortal men pretty soon thereafter, because by 2251 in the Second Age, the Nazgul are in their modern form and are riding forth. The Lord of the Nazgul serves Sauron for 1200 years honestly not accomplishing that much until the end of the Second Age and the Battle of the Last Alliance after Sauron's defeat, the Nazgul vanish from Middle-earth, only to return 1,000 years later when Sauron takes up residence in Dol Guldur as the Necromancer. So all of the Nazgul return at around the year 1,000 of the Third Age to 1,100 of the Third Age, but we know the Witch King of Angmar, the Lord of the Nazgul, not yet the Witch King of Angmar, of course, returns around 1,300 in the Third Age in the lands surrounding Arnor in the north. He sets up the kingdom of Angmar, meaning Iron Home in Sindarin, in the distant north against the Misty Mountains. By this time, Arnor had fractured into three kingdoms, Arthedain and Cardolan and Rudar, and Angmar was intended to further oppose the remnant of the northern Numenorean kingdom in Middle-earth and hasten its demise. At this point, the Lord of the Nazgul earns the title Witch-King Lord of Angmar. In 1356, the Witch-King takes Rodaur and replaces the Dúnedain king with a new king more friendly, more amenable to Sauron and his wicked wiles. In 1409, King Arvaleg of Arthedain is killed when the Witch-King sacks the city of Amon Sul. The Witch-King smites Cardolan. Next, the great men of, of whom, right, the great men of Cardolan, of course, are in some measure entombed in the barrows on the eastern edge of the Shire. More on those barrows and the blades taken from those barrows later. Uh, they were corrupted by fell spirits sent by the Witch King, of course. That's where the Barrowites come from. In 1974, during the conflict that we discussed last week, the Witch King takes Fornost, the capital of Arthedain. Arnor is at this point functionally destroyed. There is no more Arnor, there is no more Northern Kingdom. That is it. The Dúnedain are now the only remnant of the Numenorean bloodline in the north. But then the following year, General Earnor of Gondor leads an army to drive him out. This is the origin of the prophecy that not by the hand of man shall he fall, given to Earnor by Glorfindel after Earnor's well, perceived humiliation during that battle, after his horse routs and the Witch King of Angmar has a great deal of delight at his expense. 
So the Witch King flees uh, this battle, and Angmar collapses in on itself in its absence. The kingdom of Arnor, uh, the kingdom of Angmar, excuse me, also falls. Twenty-five years later, all nine Nazgul take Minas Ithil on the eastern flank of Asgiliath, turning it into Minas Morgul. Fifty years after that, the Witch King challenges the new king of Gondor. Earnor, son of Earnor, winner of the victory at Fornost, to single combat. He calls him out when he takes the throne in Minas Tirith. Earnor declines because, you know, witch king. I mean, are you going to go against the witch king mano a mano? No, says Earnor. And then later, seven years later, yes, actually, seven years after the initial challenge, the witch king makes a second challenge, and Earnor, for reasons best known to himself, takes up the challenge. He rides out from Minas Tirith to Minas Morgul, and is never seen again. Thus ends the line of kings in Gondor. This is the moment when the stewards of Gondor take over, the stewards of the line of Denethor, beginning with Mardil Varonwe. Things look bad for about a decade, for about 10 or 12 years there at Minas Tirith, basically all across Middle-earth. Things are looking pretty shaky, until Sauron is cast out of Dol Guldur, and the watchful peace begins, ensuring four centuries of quiet times for the folks of Gondor. That ends in 2460, when Sauron returns to Dol Guldur in force, and the Witch King leads a host of orcs and Haradrim against against Osgiliath, the Gondorian capital, which is all but destroyed. Over the next five centuries, the Nazgul work to strengthen Mordor for Sauron's return, which takes us to 2941 of the Third Age, in which year Gandalf and the White Council cast Sauron out of Dol Guldur again, kinda, And Bilbo Baggins finds a mysterious ring deep beneath the Misty Mountains. That is basically the history of the Witch King of Angmar, of the Lord of the Nazgul, one of the most dangerous enemies that we will ever meet in the pages of the Lord of the Rings, to call back to uh, Gandalf's description of him that was given in last week's reading. King of Angmar long ago, sorcerer, ringwraith, Lord of the Nazgul, a spear of terror in the hand of Sauron, shadow of despair. More on the Witch King of Angmar in just a few slides' time. So after seeing the great gate of Minas Tirith fall to the great ram Grond, forged in the deepest pits of Mordor, named for the mace of Morgoth, fashioned in the likeness of Karkaroth the wolf, empowered by the foul magic of the Witch King himself, we pick up with the riders of Rohan on their way to Minas Tirith. Previously, Merry and Durnhelm, the mysterious figure Durnhelm, have been traveling quietly with the Rohirrim, at least until Elfhelm trips over Merry in the night. And that is where we, uh, that is where we pick up tonight. Shane saying here in the chat, oh no, you beat me. I'm going now, Sauron at Dol, at uh, Gold, excuse me, at Dol Gildur. Um, yes, feigning to flee is, of course, the line that we get about Sauron's retreat to Mordor. It actually seems much more likely that he was intending to return to Mordor at that time and really begin moving his forces in strength in preparation for the War of the Ring, which is, of course, imminent. So let's pick up with Mary here in the camp of the Rohirrim as they ride to Minas Tirith. A tall figure loomed up and stumbled over him, cursing the tree roots. He recognized the voice as Elfhelm, the marshal. I am not a tree root, sir, he said, nor a bag, but a bruised hobbit. The least you can do in a man's is tell me what is afoot. Anything that can keep so in this devil's murk, answered Elfhelm. But my lord sends word that we must set ourselves in readiness. Orders may come for a sudden move. Is the enemy coming then? asked Mary anxiously. Are those their drums? I began to think I was imagining them as no one else seemed to take any notice of them. Nay, nay, said Elfhelm. The enemy is on the road, not in the hills. You hear the woses, the wild man of the woods. Thus they talk together from afar. They still haunt Druidon Forest, it is said. Remnants of an older time, they may be living few and secretly, wild and wary as the beasts. They do not go to war with Gondor or the Mark. But now they are troubled by the darkness and the coming of the orcs. They fear lest the dark years be returning, as seems likely enough. 
Let us be thankful that they are not hunting us, for they use poisoned arrows, it is said, and they are woodcrafty beyond compare. But they have offered their services to Theoden. Even now one of their headmen is being taken to the king. Yonder go the lights. So much I have heard, but no more. And now I must busy myself with my lord's commands. Pack yourself up, master bag! He vanished into the shadows. Mary did not like this talk of wild men and poisoned darts, but quite apart from that, a great weight of dread was on him. Waiting was unbearable. He longed to know what was going to happen. He got up and soon was walking warily in pursuit of the last lantern before it disappeared among the trees. Mary is about to demonstrate that peculiarly hobbitish talent for eavesdropping, which we have noted so often in the pages of The Lord of the Rings, but we're not there quite yet. So the drums have been sounding in the hills. You'll remember last time we discussed Mary's acute sense of hearing, picking out to those drums and his wonder that no one else seemed concerned in this open question. Did the writers of the Rohirrim hear these drums? Yes, it turns out they did. And they're not fearful because they belong to the wild man of the woods, the Woses. This is... A really peculiar turn for Tolkien to take here, because here we are plunging pretty deep into Anglo-Saxon mythology. We are plunging pretty deep into kind of proto-Germanic uh, mythology here of the Western European variety. You know, the, this notion of wild men who live in the woods, the Druidine, also known as the Drugs, the Druhu, the Rogan, the Woses, the wild men of the woods, and of course, the Pukkelmen, Pukkel being an old English term meaning little goblin, right? So these little goblin-y figures who live in the woods, they are are pretty much restricted to Druidon Forest by this point in history, though they are counted among the Adain. They're counted among the first man, right? This is an offshoot of that branch of man that would later go to Numenor and become Numenorean, right? This is, they can trace their history back, their ancestry back, pretty much as far as it is possible to trace one's ancestry back if one is a man living in Middle-earth at this time. So Elfhelm goes to some measure here to reassure Mary. No, the enemy is on the road, not in the hills. You hear the woses, the wild men of the woods. Thus they talk together from afar. They still haunt Druidon Forest. It is at haunt, of course. They, they flit from place to place, woodcrafty as they are, and they use poisoned arrows. Even Elfhelm, great marshal of the Riddermark here, is grateful that they are not in open warfare with the woses, but they do not go to, go to war with Gondor or the Mark. But now they are troubled by the darkness and the coming of the orcs. They fear lest the dark years be returning as seems likely enough. So fearful are they of the return of the dark years, literally dark, of course, because now we are at the dawnless day and no sun is shining down upon the fields of Middle-earth right now. They are so fearful of the return of the dark years that they are aiding King Theoden, which will bring us to our next slide and the speaking of Khan Buri Khan. Presently he came to an open space, where a small tent had been set up for the king under a great tree. A large lantern covered above was hanging from a bough and cast a pale circle of light below. There sat Theoden and Eomer, and before them on the ground sat a strange squat shape of a man, gnarled as an old stone, and the hairs of his scanty beard straggled on his lumpy chin like dry moss. He was short-legged and fat-armed, thick and stumpy, and clad only with grass about his waist. Mary felt that he had seen him before somewhere, and suddenly he remembered the Pukkelman of Dunharrow. Here was one of those old images brought to life, or maybe a creature descended in true line through endless years from the models used by the forgotten craftsmen long ago. There was a silence as Mary crept nearer, and then the wild man began to speak, in answer to some question, it seemed. His voice was deep and guttural, yet to Mary's surprise he spoke the common speech, though in halting fashion, and uncouth words were mingled with it. No, father of horsemen, he said, we fight not, hunt only, kill Gorgon in woods, hate orc folk, you hate Gorgon too, we help as we can, wild men have long ears and long eyes, know all paths, 
Wild men live here before stone houses, before tall men come up out of water. But our need is for aid in battle, said Aylmer. How will you and your folk help us? Bring news, said the wild man. We look out from hills, we climb big mountain and look down. Stone city is shut, fire burns from outside, now inside too. You wish to come there, then you must be quick. But Gorgon and men out of far away, he waved a short, gnarled arm eastward, sit on horse road, very many, more than horsemen. How do you know that, said Eomer. The old man's flat face and dark eyes showed nothing, but his voice was sullen with displeasure. Wild men are, are wild, free, but not children, he answered. I am great headman, Khan Buri Khan. I count many things, stars in sky, leaves on trees, men in the dark. You have a score of scores counted ten times and five. They have more. Big fight. And who will win? And many more walk round walls of stone houses. So the first confirmation here that Gondor is, in fact, besieged at Minas Tirith, uh, stone houses, is, in fact besieged here. We should note, too, that Khun Bori Khun, uh, Khan Bori Khan, excuse me, uh, is actually correct. His count here, a score of scores counted 10 times and 5. A score is 20, so this is 20 times 20 times 15, or 6,000. Exactly the number of spears that we are told Theoden took with him from the weapon take. So Khan Bori Khan, very capable of counting the forces of the Rohirrim here, even though they are arrayed in secrecy and are moving quietly through the night. But many, many more orcs and horsemen, uh, more Gorgun, if we take the uh, speech of the wild man here. This is the only word that we get, if you discount Khan Borigan's name. Like This is the only word of, uh, of their speech that we get, and we don't get a literal translation, but Gorgun is again demonstrating Professor Tolkien's skill with with phonetic morphology here, right? This ability to pluck forth a word that has no intrinsic meaning. It is a manufactured word, and yet, well, as all words are manufactured, but it is a specifically manufactured word that has no connotative sense, and yet it does possess a connotative sense. It possesses that sense of ugliness and of brutality and of raw fury here, and of course of danger. The Gorgun, right? This connects back to uh, to uh, Treebeard also giving us the Entish word for orcs, which is just fantastic. All of these words for orcs, even the the Sindarin Irch, right? All of these words demonstrate the ugliness of orcs and orc culture and the fear, the respectful fear which we should hold for them. So, as I said, Pukul here, the Pukulmen of Dunharrow here, Pukul being used from the Old English sense, meaning uh, little goblin, the Pukulmen were carved graven images on the road to Dunharrow, the stair of the hold in, in the White Mountains, and we get a sense of them sitting as they do in real life, if you've seen, you know, I think I've seen them most notably in Pictish carvings, actually, in the northeast of Scotland, but you will see these little diminutive figures with, with crossed arms. This is the uh, this is the account that Mary gives us here. Here was one of those old images brought to life, or maybe a creature descended in true line through endless years from the models used by the forgotten craftsmen long ago. He is a man. They are men, but not like the race of men that we have seen. And he calls this out, in fact, says the wild man, as he's uh, referred to here. Bring news. We look out from hills. We climb big mountain and look down. Stone City is shut. Minas Tirith is, is barricaded now. Fire burns there outside, now inside too. You wish to come there? Then you must be quick. But Gorgon and men out of the far away sit on horse road, very many more than the horsemen. This is all before 
before the movement to Minas Tirith, I suppose, of the Rohirrim. Now, we know because of the narrative structure here in this part of The Return of the King that the Rohirrim will, in fact, arrive at Minas Tirith, and this is how this comes to pass. The forces of Sauron have moved west swiftly and have blocked the road, right? They, they know that the Rohirrim may well send reinforcements. They know that something has happened at Isengard. They know, at least uh, Sauron knows that Aragorn has taken the Orthanc Palantir, so they know that something has happened at Isengard. It may well speculate that uh, uh, Saruman's forces have been uh, ruined there by the men of the Rohirrim, so they have arrayed forces against them, but the wild men are able to help them out. The uh, the, Drudine, uh, the Druidine here uh, leading the Rohirrim down through the forest, as we'll get to in just a moment. Yeah, uh, I do like the, the beat there. Um... Uh, wild men have long ears and long eyes, know all paths. Wild men live here before stone houses, before tall men come up out of water, before the arrival of the Numenorians, right? Before the return of, of Numenorian blood, the first arrival of Numenorian blood, but before the return of that branch of the lineage of men to this part of Middle-earth. They were here. They will continue to be here. And minor spoilers for uh, one of the announcements made by uh, the returning king. In fact, they will continue to be there. This will be their land forevermore. This is just the way that it is going to work. There is some speculation. Look at this description here of Khan Burigan. There sat Theoden and Eomer, and before them on the ground sat a strange squat shape of a man, gnarled as an old stone, and the hairs of his scanty beard straggled on his lumpy chin like dry moss. The association with moss there and his squat stature and straggliness does bespeak the kind of description that we got of the ants, of course, right? And, and the horns too. We get similar kinds of descriptions about the ants. And there is, if you look up illustrations of, of the, the wild man of the forest here, of the wosses here, then you will see that kind of similarity drawn out. They are feral and they are savage. They are primitive men here who have, have lived here long ages uncounted, but men nonetheless. And so they are allying themselves with the Rohirrim. Um, <clears throat> Yes, Digital Janitor saying in the chat here, I love this part. It's one of the few totally different human groups that you see in the books. Um, well, not the only, right? We have some other human cultures which are different from this kind of fragmented line of Numenorean descent, right? Of course, the Bree folk have endured in Bree for a huge span of history. They endured in Bree prior to Arnor. So the Bree folk are a distinct offshoot of the line of man. We have similar figures, I suppose. I'm thinking of Bayorn, honestly, um, back in the pages of The Hobbit. I think Bayorn kind of occupies a similar fusion of the civil and the savage, I suppose, that fusion of West and Wild, which we discussed so fully when we were reading The Hobbit back at the beginning of There and Back Again. But yes, these uh, these figures, these Pukkelmen are very different indeed. And I love how evocative it is and how how deeply we just plunge into Anglo-Saxon literature at this point, how, how deeply we kind of raid the store cupboard of Anglo-Saxon myth for this well, what would be a fairly irrelevant sequence, except A, it satisfies Tolkien's desire for kind of reasonable tactics and the movement of forces. If you've looked at his schema, if you've looked at his timeline that he's laid out, he's very careful about how long it takes people to get places and by what means they travel. That's all very carefully arrayed in the background material for The Lord of the Rings. So that satisfies that impulse. Of course, how are the writers of, of Rohan going to get to Minas Tirith? Are they just going to take the road? Wouldn't Sauron have blocked it? Well, yes, he did. And we're going to lead them instead by, by secret and covert paths down to ministers so they can arrive just in the nick of time or I guess <clears throat> well no I suppose they arrive in the nick of time right they are not the nick of time they are not like the actual eucatastrophic uh, intervention but they are a eucatastrophic intervention I suppose 
If not for the wild men, they would have floundered into this this sea of, of orcs and Haradrim here blocking the road sent west from Mordor. So let's take a look at the actual leading to Rohirrim, uh, the leading of the Rohirrim to Minas Tirith, yeah. The leading company was halted, and as those behind filed out of the trough of the Stonewain Valley, they spread out and passed to camping places under the grey trees. The king summoned the captains to council. Aylmer sent out scouts to spy upon the road, but old Khan shook his head. No good to send horsemen, he said. Wild men have already seen all that can be seen in the bad air. They will come soon and speak to me here. The captains came. And then out of the trees crept warily other pukul shapes, so like old Khan that Mary could hardly tell them apart. They spoke to Khan in a strange, throaty language. Presently, Khan turned to the king. Wild men say many things, he said. First, be wary. Still many men encamp beyond Din and hours walk yonder. He waved his arm west toward the black beacon. But none to see between here and Stonefolk's new walls. Many busy there. Walls stand up no longer. Gorgon knock them down with earth thunder and with clubs of black iron. They are unwary and do not look about them. They think their friends watch all roads. At that, old Khan made a curious gurgling noise, and it seemed that he was laughing. Good tidings, cried Amr. Even in this gloom, hope gleams again. Our enemy's devices oft serve us in his despite. The accursed darkness itself has been a cloak to us. And now, lusting to destroy Gondor and throw it down stone from stone, his orcs have taken away my greatest fear. The outwall could have been held long against us. Now we can sweep through, if once we went so far. Once again, I thank you, Khan Bori Khan of the woods, said Theoden. Good fortune go with you for tidings and for guidance. Kill Gorgun, kill orc folk. No other words, please, wild men, answered Khan. Drive away bad air and darkness with bright iron. To do these things we have ridden far, said the king, and we shall attempt them. But what shall we achieve only tomorrow will show. Another point of connection here between the wild men, between Khan, Buri, Khan, and uh, Treebeard, of course, right? You remember how gleeful Treebeard is when it comes to the, the hewing of orc necks, thanks to Gimli's axe, and the killing of orcs is a good and noble pastime that we can undertake, and so apparently the wild man agree. So we see here that the wall has fallen. Walls stand up no longer. Uh, in fact, uh, yes, uh, none to see between here and stone folks new walls. You remember the new wall is the Ramas that has been erected around the Pelennor Fields, right? The, the enclosure that goes beyond Minas Tirith and to include the civil and settled farmland in the shadow of Minas Tirith. That's the Ramas that he's talking about. That's the new wall. So the new wall has fallen. Many busy there. Walls stand up no longer. Gorgon knocked them down with earth thunder and with clubs of black iron. They are unwary and do not look about them. They think their friends will watch all roads. And Aomer gets the point immediately. Even in this gloom, hope gleams again. Our enemy's devices oft serve us in his despite. The accursed darkness itself has been a cloak to us. And now, lusting to destroy Gondor and throw it down stone from stone, his orcs have taken away my greatest fear. The outwall could have been held long against us. Now we can sweep through if once we win so far. Aomer is concerned that if the forces of Mordor had taken the Pelennor and then held the Ramas, rather than destroying it, rather than tearing it down, they had held the Ramas, then the riders of Rohan would have been, well, no good at all. The Rohirrim are not a siege force. They are cavalry. They can't march or, or ride. They can't hurl themselves against a fortified position. But in the casting down of the Ramas, Sauron's forces have left themselves open to that intrusion of cavalry in their midst, right? The riders of Rohan can actually effect great military change upon the field of battle there at the Pelennor. So more on that as we move forward. But much more importantly... 
Aylmer's getting the point. This ties back to Gandalf's phraseology in the, the last reading that we did in last week's session. Our enemy's devices oft serve us in his despite. The accursed darkness itself has been a cloak to us. We talked about the, the bringing down of this darkness, the shadow of Mordor, right? The, the driving out of sunlight here on the dawnless day. Awesome. Good job, Sauron. You did this to try and cloak us in despair, to try and drain from us the spirit of hope, the spirit to fight, the the will to protect that which we value the most. You did this to dampen our spirits, but actually you've just shrouded us from your own scouts, from your own forces. This, of course, is also partly a consequence of Sauron's hasty action, of Sauron's premature assault upon Minas Tirith. He didn't plan this assault. This was not the way this war was supposed to go down, you guys. He acts hastily because of Aragorn revealing himself through the, the Orthanc stone, through the Palantir to Sauron and showing him the, the blade that has been reforged and so on and so forth, revealing himself, uncloaking himself to, to reveal his true nature. And of course, leaning into that idea that Sauron has, that Aragorn possesses the ring because Sauron cannot fathom anyone wanting to destroy the ring. I mean, why would they, right? It's a very powerful tool. More on that as we move forward. So this brings us up to uh, to the ride to Minas Tirith. We are now ready to go, but first we are going to rest. We're going to draw breath, draw strength before we actually assault Minas Tirith at daybreak. And since we must look for fell deeds in the need of all our strength, said Aylmer, I counsel that we rest now and set out hence by night, and so time our going that we come up on the fields when tomorrow is as light as it will be or when our Lord gives the signal. To this the king assented, and the captains departed. But soon Elfhelm returned. The scouts have found naught to report beyond the Grey Wood Lord, he said, save two men only, two dead men and two dead horses. Well, said Aymer, what of it? This, Lord, they were errant riders of Gondor. Hirgon was one, maybe at least his hand still clasped the red arrow, but his head was hewn off, and this also. It would seem by the signs that they were fleeing westward when they fell. As I read it, they found the enemy already on the outwall or assailing it when they returned, and that would be two nights ago if they used fresh horses from the post as is their wont. They could not reach the city and turn back. Alas, said Theoden, then Denethor has heard new, no news of our riding and will despair of our coming. Needbrook's no delay, yet late is better than never, said Aylmer, and mayhap in this time shall the old saw be proved truer than ever before since men spoke with mouth. So Hirgon and the other messenger of Gondor have tried to return to Minas Tirith to bring word to Denethor that the riders of, Ro- of Rohan are actually, you know, riding, that they are honoring their ancient alliance and are actually coming to help in Minas Tirith's darkest hour but they find instead the Ramas already under assault and they try to turn back when they are overcome by the forces of Sauron and killed, Hirgon's head hewn from his body. Denethor has no word. The forces guarding Minas Tirith, the forces protecting Minas Tirith against this all-out assault have no word that the riders of Rohan are coming, which of course isn't going to stop them, isn't going to impede them, is only going to allow for this eucatastrophic stroke as they arrive. Need brooks no delay, yet late is better than never, said Aomer, and mayhap in this time shall the old saw be proved truer than ever before since men spoke with mouth. It has never been more true that late is better than never, says Aomer, and also that need brooks no delay. With that, we come to the very brink of battle. Oh, JY saying, uh, anyone else reminded of the last battle of the Narnia series when hearing the bit about the arrow? Yes, that's that's very good. That's very good. Um, oh, Sanitar, uh, Sanitar Claus asks, what is this usage of brooks? I'm not familiar with that. Um, need brooks, no delay. It it's, uh, allows for, permits, basically, right? Need permits, no delay. When, when something has to be done, it has to be done and you cannot delay it. But if you have to delay it, then late is better than never, right? This is... 
I believe not actually like a, a literal translation of an existing proverb. He's kind of done that thing. Uh, he, Professor Tolkien, has kind of done that thing that Professor Tolkien does and kind of modified our current aphorisms, our current saws, as Aomer describes them here, which is another kind of archaic use of that word, right? A saw is simply a, a saying, a proverbial saying, I suppose. And Professor Tolkien has, again, kind of modified it here to seat it more appropriately in the tone and the register of the Lord of the Rings and specifically the Rohiric tone and register that we're seeing here in The Return of the King, but he's adapting something that we say to this day, right? Late is better than never, says Aymer. Well, better late than never is the modern kind of adaption of that or corruption of that. And that's certainly the uh, the game that Tolkien is playing there. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's real good. It's real good. Uh, Eve saying, please don't remind me of the last battle. I'm already sad. No, I know, I know. It's okay, you guys. We're If we weep, we will weep together as we move through two more slides in this chapter. We're making great progress. This is fantastic. We're going to talk about Widfara and the riding to battle. Do you remember the wild man's words, Lord? Said another. I live upon the open wall in days of peace. Widfara is my name, and to me also the air brings messages. Already the wind is turning. There comes a breath out of the south. There is a sea tang in it, faint though it be. The morning will bring new things. Above the reek it will be drawn when you pass the wall. If you speak truly, Widfara, then may you live beyond this day in years of blessedness, said Theoden. He turned to the men of his household who were near, and he spoke now in a clear voice so that many of the riders of the first Eored heard him. Now is the hour come, riders of the mark, sons of Aeol. Foes and fire are before you and your homes far behind. Yet though you fight upon an alien field, the glory that you reap there shall be your own forever. Oaths ye have taken, now fulfill them all, to lord and land and league of friendship. Men clashed spear upon shield. Eomar, my son, you lead the first Ered, said Theoden, and it shall go behind the king's banner in the center. Elfhelm, lead your company to the right when we pass the wall, and Grimbold shall lead his toward the left. Let the other companies follow behind these three that lead as they have chance. Strike wherever the enemy gathers. Other plans we cannot make, for we know not yet how things stand upon the field. Forth now, and fear no darkness. And so... They begin to ride out. The king's banner in the lead with Eomer right behind him, leading the first Eored, right, the first company of the Rohirrim, with uh, Elfhelm on the, the, the right flank here as we go forward, and Grimbold on the left. These three companies forming the, the point of the spear. I suppose, technically, Theoden King forming the point of the spear. And, of course, men clashed spear upon shield. We're used to thinking of spears as being the default metaphor for the Rohirrim, particularly with regard to their military tactics, right? Also, historically, like a great formation for cavalry charges, right? You form a spear so that you can break through lines of infantry, and that is exactly what the Rohirrim are doing here. Theoden King first, right there with his personal guard, Eomer behind him, and, and Elfhelm to the right, and Grimbold to the left, and the other companies following thereafter, and no plan past that, right? Strike wherever chance presents itself. We don't know the arraignment of the foes on the field we don't even know the field below. We don't know what the Pelennor is like. We have no bloody idea. We've never been here before. But okay, we're ready to do it. We're ready to charge in. We're going to call out here to Widfara. Uh, Widfara, uh, directly from Old English, uh, Widefarer, right? That's the modern English version of his name. Widefarer, far traveler, I suppose. Like, he has ranged far and wide. Uh, and he lives upon the open world. The open world is the... Uh, a world is a... Uh, 
uh, a large, uncultivated, uh, open and bare space, like normally a moor, right? Normally we would describe moors as wolds, so he probably keeps pasture in the uh, the upper reaches of Rohan here, in the, the more um, the more frigidinous uh, parts of Rohan. He will keep open pasture there, so he's accustomed to being outside, and he can he can sense these movement in the air. To me, also the air brings messages. Already the wind is turning. There comes a breath out of the south. There is a sea tang in it, faint though it may be. The scent of the sea is in the air. The air is stirring for the first time since this cloud fell over us, since the sun was darkened. Something is coming, says Widfara. And Theoden responds appropriately. If you speak truly, Widfara, then may you live beyond this day in years of blessedness. And then... He charges his man. Now is the hour come, riders of the mark, sons of Aeorl. Foes and fire are before you and your homes far behind. And you'll see even here, though this is a tribute to dialogue, though this is prose here, you will feel that that rhythm and structure of the Rohiric poetry, of Anglo-Saxon poetry, right? Look at that alliteration. Foes and fire are before you and your homes far behind. Yet though you fight upon an alien field, the glory that you reap there shall be your own forever. Though we are charging to the aid of Gondor, men are not going to sing songs of Gondor about this. Men are going to sing songs of the Rohirrim, of the writers of the Mark. Here we go. Oaths ye have taken. Now fulfill them all to lord and land and league of friendship. The oaths that you have taken... You have sworn to me personally, your lord. You have sworn to uh, you have sworn to Rohan, of which I am the embodiment. And league of friendship, this alliance that we have formed with Gondor. These are the oaths that we have taken, and now they will be fulfilled. Oaths ye have taken, now fulfill them all to lord and land and league of friendship. And we feel the rising action there in his dialogue. Men clashed spear upon shield. We get no description of the tumult. We get no description of like the massed sound of the Rohirrim responding to this, right? Not just his his captains, the men of his household, but also the first Eored, who can, who can hear part of this speech at least, right? As Theoden raises his voice, his men are in rapt attention. They clash spear upon shield. That sound must be deafening. That sound must be like the coming thunder here as the riders of Rohan prepare themselves to march. Um, good, good. Um, Karen's saying, it, also, it always strikes me as weird that J.R.R.T. uses alien in the speech, very Latinate for the context. It is oddly Latinate, but it is also appropriately medieval, right? Alien entered Old English long before Professor Tolkien's cutoff point, right? Long before 1500, long before the Norman Conquest. It, it, it is a functional word. I, I believe it did anyway. I'll need to look up the etymology of alien, actually, to make sure that that is true. But I seem to recall reading the word alien used in this context, right? Used to mean foreign, used to mean distant, used to mean other than our own. That seems to me to be pretty consistent. But you're right. It absolutely does stand out, Karen. I, I do agree. Yeah. Good. Good. All right. So let's get to it. Let's get to the slide that gave us our title for last week's session. Huh? How about that? How about we just demonstrate how far behind we are with what is, yeah, as I said last time, my second favorite piece of Anglo-Saxon poetry that we get in The Lord of the Rings. We're going to cap this with Aomer in the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Probably not this week, but it's something to look forward to. But at that same moment, there was a flash, as if lightning had sprung from the earth beneath the city. For a searing second, it stood dazzling, far off in black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle... And then as the darkness closed again, there came rolling over the fields a great boom. 
At that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud, he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden! Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter! Spears shall be shaken, shields shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! With that, he seized a great horn from Guthlaf, his banner-bearer, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder, and straightway all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like a storm upon the plain and a thunder in the mountains. Ride now, ride now, ride to Gondor! Suddenly the king cried to Snowmane, and the horse sprang away. Behind him his banner blew in the wind, white horse upon a field of green, but he outpaced it. After him thundered the knights of his house, but he was ever before them. Eomer rode there, the white horse-tail in his helm floating in his speed, and the front of the first arid roared like a breaker foaming to the shore, but Theoden could not be overtaken. Fay he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was borne up on snowmane like a god of old, even as Orome the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. His golden shield was uncovered, and lo, it shone like an image of the sun, and the, gla- the grass flamed into green around the white feet of his steed, for morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hooves of wrath rode over them. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song, and they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. Wow, there is a lot to unpack, right? There is a lot to unpack. We begin with the flash of light and the great boom, right? This is the enchantment of the Witch King of Angmar as the gate is finally taken down by Grond, right? This is the spell that is cast as Grond strikes the great gate of Minas Tirith three times over and it finally falls. For a searing second, it's the dazzling far off in black and white, its topmost tower like a glittering needle. But then as darkness closed again, there came rolling over the fields a great boom. And that boom, this moment of of disaster, right? Okay, I'm going to pause here and just invert our usual perspective. Usually, when we think about this sequence, when we think about the arrival of the Riders of Rohan to the Battle of the Palinor Fields, we think of the eucatastrophic arrival of the Rohirrim, right? From the perspective of the men of Gondor, things are pretty bad right now. Grond has come across the Great Plain of, of the Palinor, and it has smashed down the unconquerable gate of, of Minas Tirith. And the Witch King of Angmar himself has come in and has faced off against Gandalf, and we've had that incredible sequence there. This is a really bad moment. And then the Riders of Rohan are coming. The Riders of Rohan are coming, right? We get this eucatastrophic intervention here. But that is not the heart of this secondary eucatastrophe. This is the heart of the secondary eucatastrophe. Because in this moment, Theoden is looking down upon Minas Tirith and he is seeing the city of flame. He's seeing the host of Mordor, this unfathomable army arrayed across the Palinor. He has, for a moment, no hope. He is despairing. We see him shrink down again and become the old man that he was when we first met him back in Methesald in Edoras, right? After the, the lies of Grima Wormtongue have, have poured their poison through his body and removed from him the vitality of his youth, the vitality of his kingship. But in that moment, when the light flares and the boom rolls out across the Palinor, Theoden is restored. At that sound, the bent shape of the king sprang suddenly erect. Tall and proud, he seemed again, and rising in his stirrups, he cried in a loud voice, more clear than any there had ever heard a mortal man achieve before. He's not just back, he's bigger than ever. So powerful is this moment of despair, so powerful is this moment of of eucatastrophe, right? This splitting of the darkness and the boom of thunder as as the... uh, 
as the battering ram takes the gate of Minas Tirith, this is what infuses Theoden with a new resolution. This is what sets Theoden apart from Denethor. I mean, this is... Obviously, we've been setting Theoden and Denethor apart quite consistently through this book in The Lord of the Rings. But more importantly, like this is one of the focal moments that we can look at. When despair strikes, Theoden finds again his inner strength, and then he gives us his call. Arise, arise, riders of Theoden. Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. Fell deeds awake. Here we are at dawn, right? The sun is maybe coming. We don't know. We've had this stirring of air from the south, the sea tang on the air from the south, like maybe dawn is coming and maybe it'll be another dawnless day. We don't know yet, but fell deeds awake. The fell deeds of the orcs, presumably, but also probably the fell deeds of the Rohirrim, right? We're going to war. This is it. Fell deeds awake. What kind of fell deeds, Theoden? Fire and slaughter. There is fire and slaughter happening right now. And you know what? We are going to bring our own. The Rohirrim right here, bringing the thunder to the uh, to the siege of Gondor. Spear shall be shaken. Shield shall be splintered. You'll note the brilliant alliteration throughout all of this, of course, that, that classic Anglo-Saxon alliteration. We're not relying on rhythm. We're not relying on meter. We're not relying on rhyme. We're relying on alliteration to give this poem its 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 power, its propulsive power, to use a pleasingly alliterative phrase when we're talking about Anglo-Saxon poetry. Spear shall be shaken. Shield shall be splintered. A sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Hey, Theoden, what is it that you're saying to the men of Rohan? What is it that you're saying to your knights as they prepare to ride now into the very teeth of the worst battle that has ever been fought, well, that has been fought in modern memory here upon the face of Arda? Fell deeds awake, fire and slaughter. This is what is happening. Fell deeds awake, there is fire, there is slaughter. Spears shall be shaken, shields shall be splintered. We are going to take our hits. These things are going to to brutalize us, right? The, the very arms that we have borne into this conflict are going to be challenged themselves. Spear shall be shaken, shield shall be splintered, a sword day, a red day, ere the sun rises. Before the sun is even in the sky, there is going to be blood spilled. This is a sword day, a red day. He's making no promise of victory. That's the crucial part here. He's making no promise of victory. He's not saying, riders of Rohan, to me, to victory, let's go save Gondor. No. I mean, possibly. That's in part why they're doing this. But most importantly, they're doing this because of the oaths that we mentioned on the last page. The oaths to lord and to land and to, to league of fellowship, right? This is what is important. This is what is compelling the Rohirrim to take action here. It doesn't matter, in a sense, if they win. Or at least... Let's be careful about this. I, I, I myself want to be careful about this. The sure and certain knowledge of their imminent failure would not stop Theoden in this moment from taking exactly the same action. Is there hope of victory? There may be. Hope of victory in this moment is irrelevant because he has faced down despair. He has done it, right? He's he's crumpling in his saddle once more. Like he's descending into the darkness that he has faced before. But once again, there is light. It's a very different kind of light, right? It's almost a... a, a intentional inversion of that sequence where Gandalf takes him out of Methuselah and he's like, oh, it's not so dark after all. Hey, look, I'm my old self again. Let's ride. It's almost the inversion of that because that is the light of the sun and of goodness and of warmth and of community and of hope. This light, this brilliant light that shines like a tower for just a second, this is different. This is not that same, same sense. Uh, it does not have that same sense about it. 
With that, he seized a great horn from Guthlaf, his banner bearer. Uh, Guthlaf here is somewhat ironically named Guthlaf, is Anglo-Saxon for um, strictly battle lever, right? Guthlaf, battle lever, or what it actually means is survivor. Ironically, Guthlaf will not survive the Battle of the Pelennor Fields. Just too bad for him. But, you know, he is at least Theoden King's banner bearer in this moment, and he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder. Not only is his voice louder than any other mortal man that any man of the Rohirrim has ever heard, but he takes this horn and he blows it so hard that he just destroys it. He destroys it in the horn call. And straight away, all the horns in the host were lifted up in music, and the blowing of the horns of Rohan in that hour was like the storm upon the plain and the thunder in the mountains, right, where we're... We're metaphorically pulling the whole force of, of nature into the ride of the Rohirrim here. This is incredibly powerful stuff. And, of course, at this point, the tone elevates still higher. Suddenly, the king cried to Snowmane and the horse sprang away. Theoden, right here in the, the very vanguard, leading the assault as a king should. And you'll remember Denethor saying that, uh, in fact, actually, uh, kings don't do that. Sauron's not going to do that. Sauron is not going to come to the field himself. He's only going to show up when all is over and he can gloat over his victory. Kings don't do that. But Theoden does. Denethor is staying up in the citadel and counting himself heroic. And again, I want to be careful about this. I don't want to be too negative about Denethor at this point. But, but he, is, he believes that wearing his sword, even wearing his sword to bed, will prevent the softening of his body. He is still worthy of being the steward in that moment. But great kings actually lead the fight. Great kings stand in the place of their nation. Great kings represent metonymically their own banner as they go forth upon the field of battle. Theoden and Eomer and Hay, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, the returning king, we'll get to him in just a minute. So they ride forth, and Eomer is riding as fast as he can, and, and his first Eoreth is behind him, and they're, they're riding, but none of them can catch Theoden. None of them can keep up with him. Theoden could not be overtaken. Fae, he seemed. Remember, we talked about that last time. Fae, this, this, this death madness, this the belief that you are riding to your death or that death is about to claim you. Fae, he seemed, or the battle fury of his fathers ran like new fire in his veins, and he was borne up on snowmen like a god of old, even as Orome the Great in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. Of course, when The Return of the King was published in 1955, no one knew who Orme was. No one really knew who the Valar were. We don't find that out until the publication of The Silmarillion. We did talk about this right in the Q&A section at the end of last week's recording, talking a little about Orme, the huntsman of the Valar, right? The, the, the most... Uh, most wrathful, most dangerous of the Valar, right? He is absolutely an appropriate, uh, an appropriate point of reference here. Not only is he an appropriate reference because he is the hunter and because he is vengeful, right? Because he is dreadful in his anger. But there's also a pretty good pun here that I think Professor Tolkien is kind of playing with because Orome's name means sound of horns. That's, that's literally the translation of Orome's name as he, as he rides forth here. So with all of these horns of the Rohirrim, right, as they descend to, uh, to the, the Pelennor, as they descend upon the, the dread host of Mordor here, they are, Theoden himself is specifically likened to the greatest hunter in history, right? We talked a little last time about the use of the word God here, and it's used in a, a lowercase g sense of like, you know, pantheistic deities. Uh, that makes 
uh, yeah, an uncomfortable kind of association in some senses, but also a certain amount of like intuitive, connotative sense here. So much like Orome the Hunter, much like, you know, uh, Orome the Great, as he's described in, in the Battle of the Valar when the world was young. So Theoden is writing forth like the sound of horns, literally like the sound of horns. And then we elevate the language still further. His golden shield was uncovered and lo, it shone like an image of the sun and the grass flamed into green about the white feet of his steed. Dawn is coming. This southern wind has, has whistled up off of the sea and is pushing away the darkness of Mordor now. New light is coming. New dawn is rising. The sun is returning to, to the Pelennor fields. And the first indication that we get of it is the reflection of the sunlight in Theoden's golden shield as it lights the grass around him, right? The grass flamed into green around the white feet of his steed. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. Remember, at the beginning of last week's session, we were talking about this uh, this paratactic structure, right? As opposed to hypotactic structure, this coordinate rather than subordinate uh, syntactical structure that we're using here. You'll note these, uh, these connective ands that we get. For morning came, morning and a wind from the sea, and darkness was removed, and the hosts of Mordor wailed, and terror took them, and they fled, and died, and the hoofs of wrath rode over them. There's one semicolon in all of that, and otherwise we're just connecting with commas at this point. We're getting this paratactical sense of... of of immediacy and and simultaneity. It's not a word. How would you conjugate that? I know that word. I'm sorry. It's been a long week, you guys, and a long day of podcasting. I do apologize. All of these things are happening simultaneously, he said, stumbling over his words utterly inelegantly. All of these things are happening at once. They are coordinate thoughts, coordinate details, coordinate impressions, not subordinate impressions. Once again, we're not looking deeper. We're looking wider. All of these things are happening at once, and it is a riot. And then all the host of Rohan burst into song. So it's not enough that their horns are sounding. It's not enough that they are riding down toward the Pelennor Fields and that it sounds like the thunder, right? That it sounds like the coming of, of, of the fate of doom, I suppose, upon the, the host of Mordor here. It's not enough that their horns are blaring and their hoofbeats are sounding. They also start to sing, spontaneously sing. And they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city, even in Gondor now, right? Gondor now knows, Minas Tirith now knows, the, the stalwart defenders of that, of that white tower now know that the riders of Rohan are with them. It's just brilliant. Like, it's just fantastic. The way that we elevate and elevate and elevate and then crash into the end of the chapter is just utterly, utterly fantastic. Here, let me catch up. Um, yeah, Jackie sang. I imagine the song gives them strength and courage, right? They sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them. I think the singing is a representation of that joy, right? It is a manifestation of that joy. The, the singing is the effect rather than the cause. But I do agree, Jackie, that singing all together, right? A song of warfare, a song of slaying, right? Coming down upon the orc host here. We're ready to do the thing. We're ready to get our hands dirty. A sword day, a red day. You know, we're ready to do this. Of course, that's going to unite the Rohirrim. It's going to make them seem even greater, as the horns did, right? The, the, the raising of voices in song is just... I think metaphorically here, but also literally for the experience of the Rohirrim, uh, kind of horns plus, right? The horns are great, but you know what's even better than a horn? A song. Here we go. Because the product of the horn is not distinctly Rohiric. It's, it's 
a sound. It, it doesn't have identity. It doesn't have nationhood. It doesn't have sense of purpose or loyalty to Theoden King, whereas the songs presumably have all of those things. So they sang as they slew, for the joy of battle was on them, and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. Fair and terrible. This is a beautiful thing for the men of Gondor. It's also probably pretty terrifying, right? It's probably also pretty bad for anyone who is hearing it. Like, that does not sound like a good thing. That doesn't sound like something you would just want to kick back. You know, the writers of Rohan, you four CD set, order now from Time Life Music. You know, it's probably not soothing. It's probably not uh, not the kind of thing that you would listen to over dinner with a, you know, a glass of wine and a, I don't know, some kind of dessert. Yes, good. Um... Oh, interesting. Nikki says, don't their horns carry certain magical properties as well in the same way as certain swords or weapons, or at least some of them? Um, I mean, presumably in exactly the same way, right, Nikki? I think that um, that, that infusion of essence is probably very similar. I, I dare say that some horns of the Rohirrim have, I hesitate to say magical, and I certainly hesitate to say supernatural, but but augmented blessed qualities about them in exactly the same way as blessed weapons uh, and, and augmented weapons have additional powers to them or, or at least additional significance and additional import there. We don't call out the the specific horns, right? The only horn that we get specifically with that, he sees the great horn, a great horn, not the great horn, not a special specific horn, but just a great horn from Guthlaf, his banner bearer. And he blew such a blast upon it that it burst asunder. And that's all Theoden. That's all Theoden doing that. That's, that's not, the horn itself is not giving up its essence in this blast. That seems to be Theoden's power in this moment, manifesting his, his kingliness in the best way. Oh, Nikki's thinking of Boromir's horn specifically. Um, does Boromir's horn possess magical powers? I'll need to give that some thought, actually, Nikki. I'm not sure. Is Boromir's horn an enchanted horn? Or is it enchanted because it is Boromir's horn? if that makes sense. Um, I will give that some thought. That, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure. I don't think that we get canonically in the text an acknowledgement of any kind of supernatural power uh, associated with the horn. But of course, it does have representative significance, certainly by the time it's been cleaved in twain and returned to Denethor in Minas Tirith. I think that there's something there. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's worth thinking about. Thank you for that thought, Nick. I've honestly never considered that. I've never never given that a moment's thought, so I will give that some thought, and uh, maybe we'll pick up uh, in some future session. You guys, let's get into the Battle of the Pelennor Field, shall we? Chapter 6 of Book 5 of The Return of the King, and this is just a stark, a stark cut here, right? Sometimes in Professor Tolkien's work, we will get a gentle out and a gentle in. We will kind of pull the camera back from the action at the end of the chapter, and then we will draw the camera into the new action at the beginning of the next chapter. We don't do that here at all. We have Theoden rising, right? The, the men of, of Rohan singing as they slew, and the, the sound the, the bright and terrible, fair and terrible coming to the walls of Minas Tirith itself, and then we hard cut into chapter 6, and we pick up with, but it was no orc chieftain or brigand that led the assault upon Gondor. The darkness was breaking too soon before the date that his master had set for it. Fortune had betrayed him for the moment, and the world had turned against him. Victory was slipping from his grasp, even as he stretched out his hand to seize it, but his arm was long. He was still in command, wielding great powers. King, Ringwraith, Lord of the Nazgul, he had many weapons. He left the gate and vanished. 
Theoden, king of the Mark, had reached the road from the gate to the river, and he turned toward the city that was now less than a mile distant. He slackened his pace a little, seeking new foes, and his knights came about him, and Durnhelm was with them. Ahead, near the walls, Elfhelm's men were among the siege engines, hewing, slaying, driving their foes into the fire pits. Well nigh all the northern half of the Pelennor was overrun, and their camps were blazing. Orcs were flying toward the river like herds before the hunters, and the Rohirrim went hither and thither at their will. But they had not yet overthrown the siege, nor won the gate. Many foes stood before it, and on the further half of the plain there were other hosts still unfought. Southward, beyond the road, lay the main force of the Haradrim, and there their horsemen were gathered under the standard of their chieftain. And he looked out, and in the growing light he saw the banner of the king, and that it was far ahead of the battle with few men about it. Then he was filled with a red wrath, and shouted aloud, and displaying his standard, black serpent upon scarlet, he came against the white horse and the green with the great press of man, and the drawings of the scimitars of the Southrons was like a glitter of stars. Then Theoden was aware of him, and would not wait for his onset, but crying to Snowmane he charged headlong to greet him. Great was the clash of their meeting, but the white fury of the Northmen burned the halter, and more skilled was their knighthood with long spears and bitter. Fewer were they, but they clove through the Southrons like a firebolt in a forest." Right through the press drove Theoden, Thengel's son, and his spear was shivered as he threw down their chieftain, outswept his sword, and he spurred to the standard, hewed staff and bearer, and the black serpent foundered. Then all that was left unslain of their cavalry turned and fled far away. So we're getting the lightning strikes here of the Rohiric assault upon the Pelennor. First of all, of course, we get the Witch King of Angmar, but it was no orc chieftain or brigand that led the assault upon Gondor. King, Ringwraith, Lord of the Nazgul, he had many weapons. He left the gate and vanished. He's like, oh, okay, cool. This, this is how it's going to turn out. Fine, I'll go get my ride. I'll be back in a minute. Don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Theoden, King of the Mark. And, and look at how we... We move away from proper nouns here to just like like purposeful, punchy capital uh, capital letter nouns. Theoden, king of the Mark, had reached the road from the gate, capital G, to the river, capital R, and he turned toward the city, capital C, that was now less than a mile distant. We're elemental now. We're not even thinking about the Pelennor and Minas Tirith. We're not thinking about the details that we've been given before. This is now just just warfare. This is this has become brutal. This has become punchy in that sense, right? It, it has been stripped of its specificity and has become elemental now, and Theoden is absolutely caught up into it. So they've cleaved through fully half of the Pelennor here, right? They have the orcs, if not vanquished, then at least in disarray, but the other half of the Pelennor is still untouched, and they haven't won the gate, and they haven't broken the siege, and things are going well, but they have not yet won the day. And then the king of the Haradrim, the king of the Southrons, looks out and sees Theoden out in front of everyone else, and he does what any great tactician would do. He targets the king. He sees the standard there, and he goes after it. And it doesn't work out at all. But the white fury of the Northmen burned the hotter, and more skilled was their knighthood with long spears and bitter. Bitter here being used in its older sense of, of biting, right? So the spears are long and biting. Fewer were they, but they clove through the Southrons like a firebolt in a forest. Right through the press th uh, drove Theoden, Thengel's son, and his spear was shivered as he threw down their chieftain. So the spear is taken from his grasp, right? As he as he casts down the chieftain of the Southrons, the chieftain of the Haradrim here, outswept his sword, and he spurred to the stand standard, hewed staff and bearer. So he cuts through the standard and the standard bearer, casting down the black serpent standard of the Haradrim. Then all that was left unslain of their cavalry turned and fled far away. We've got this lightning strike assault, this, this, this classic cavalry charge, right? 
cavalry charges don't end in a line of horses fighting a line of men, or if they do, then they end very badly for the line of horses. Cavalry troops are important because they have that increased mobility. And you remember Gandalf telling Denethor in the previous chapter that the one advantage that they have, by the way, is that Sauron doesn't have any cavalry. He has some cavalry, but he doesn't have enough. So the Rahirim are cleaving through the infantry as cavalry charges have cleaved through infantry troops forever, like since there has been cavalry. That is one of the great kind of turning points in the, the evolution of warfare is the advent of cavalry and, and uh, mounted combat like this, which happens because we arrive at a point in history where we can simply use more sophisticated tactics. If you go back previously, of course, warriors would ride horses, but they would set up the battlefield and they would kind of agree to the battle. The, the, the battle would be almost mutually agreed and they would say, okay, everyone get off your horses, go pick at the horses over there. We're going to line up. Okay, and fight. This is what we're going to do. And actually, you know, losses, like the actual death toll of battles in that period was relatively small. 10 to 20% of most armies would fall in any given engagement, which is not what you think of when you think about the absolute devastation of modern combat and modern warfare, of course, or even, you know, post-medieval warfare. So Theoden is carving through the Pelennor. Elfhelm is off there among the siege engines, casting the orcs into the fire pit. More orcs still are, are fleeing for the river, fleeing from this, this oncoming storm of the Rohirrim. But the king of the Nazgul, the, uh, the uh, witch king of Angmar, has retired, and he is not done yet. He returns, of course, on his beast. Then out of the blackness in his mind, he thought he heard Durnhelm speaking, yet now the voice seems strange, recalling some other voice that he had done. We should say we're in Mary's POV in this section here. Begone, foul Dwemerlake, lord of Carrion! Leave the dead in peace! A cold voice answered, Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamenta lamentation beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool. No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Durnhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. The winged creature screamed at her, but the ringwraith made no answer and was silent as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. He opened his eyes and the blackness was lifted from them. There were some... Excuse me. There, some paces from him, sat the great beast, and all seemed dark about it, and above it loomed the Nazgul lord like a shadow of despair. A little to the left, facing them, stood, he, stood she whom he had called Dernhelm. But the helm of her secrecy had fallen from her, and her bright hair, released from its bond, gleamed like pale gold upon her shoulders. Her eyes, grey as the sea, were hard and fell, and yet tears were on her cheek. A sword was in her hand, and she raised her shield against the horror of her enemy's eyes. Eowyn it was, and Durnhelm also, for into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the writing from Dunharrow, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart and great wonder, and suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He clenched his hand. She should not die so fair, so desperate. At least she would not die alone, unaided. The moment when Eowyn faces the Witch King of Angmar in the Peter Jackson adaptation of The Lord of the Rings is a great cinematic moment. A great cinematic moment. Doesn't quite hold a candle to that scene in the book, though, for me. Particularly Eowyn's lines here are just 
just fantastic. Be gone, foul Dwemer Lake, Lord of Carrion, leave the dead in peace. Dwemer Lake here uh, in Rohiric, meaning a... Uh, a work of necromancy, right? You product of necromancy, but it's direct Middle English to Dwimmer or Dwemer in Middle English, meaning illusion or magic or sorcery, but like fell magic, right? Like Morgul here, like dark sorcery. Uh, and in Middle English, lake meaning play. So so you play of dark sorcery, that's, uh, that's a product of necromancy, that, that necromantic thing here. Be gone, foul Dwimmer, like Lord of Carrion, leave the dead in peace. Lord of Carrion here, of course, not indicating that he has dominion over the dead and and the the foul and corrupted but rather that he himself is the paragon of of death that he is dead himself absolutely calling out his undead state here come not between the nazgul and his prey and what a threat this is or he will not referring to himself in the third person or he will not slay thee in thy turn he will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation beyond all darkness where thy flesh shall be devoured and thy shrivel mind be left naked to the lidless eye don't don't, Eowyn, don't come at me right now, because if you do, death will seem like a holiday. Death will be your fondest wish if you stand against me right now. A sword rang as it was drawn. You notice how we get this passive voice here, a sword rang, not the active voice. Eowyn drew her sword. A sword rang as it was drawn, echoing in the ring of steel of her laughter that we get just a, a couple of beats later, right? Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. Apparently the witch king of Angmar has also heard the prophecy that he will not be felled by the hand of man. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour, the strangest, Dernhelm laughing. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowyn's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. So at this point, Theoden has been thrown down, right? He is pinned beneath snowmane at this point. And maybe, for all we know, dead or dying. And uh, Eowyn is is going to his rescue. The the uh, Witch King of Angmar is standing between them at this point. You stand between me and my lord and kin. That is what is missing for me in the Peter Jackson adaptation. The prophecy is one thing, right? But the prophecy doesn't explain Eowyn's motivation, right? Killing bad guys? Okay, killing bad guys is like a motivation. It's a motivation that we can associate with a lot of the characters in The Lord of the Rings, actually, particularly in the adaptation, as it turns out. But that is not her motivation here. She doesn't just want to kill him. She doesn't just want to win the fight. She doesn't just want to save the day. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. This is an absolutely unparalleled challenge in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. And of course, we've just had Gandalf facing off against the Witch King of Angmar too, right? Which called back in turn to Gandalf facing off against the Balrog back in khazad We've seen this kind of standoff before, but Eowyn is doing something very, very different. And the winged creature screamed at her, but the Ringwraith made no answer and was silent as if in sudden doubt. Very amazement for a moment conquered Mary's fear. So for a second, he's like, wait, I'm forgetting to be afraid. So amazed am I? He opened his eyes and the blackness was lifted from them. So the despair that has been cast by the the Lord of the Ringwraiths here falters for a moment at Eowyn's opposition, at Eowyn's impudence, at Eowyn taking up arms against him, drawing her blade on him, no less. And he's fearful, of course, because of the prophecy. The great gifts of evil so often take away. This is... Just so powerful. <laughs> Becca saying, so this prophecy only works because Eowyn sees herself so vividly as a woman, not a man. Is this her Moana moment? Well, 
You know what? Let's move into the next slide, and we're actually going to talk about this, okay? We're actually going to talk about the prophecy and how it plays out. I guess before we do that, let's pay close attention to Mary here at the end. Eowyn it was, and Durnhelm also, for into Mary's, uh, into Mary's mind flashed the memory of the face that he saw at the writing from Dunharrow, the face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope. Oh, she's Fae, like so many characters that we're describing in this part of the book. She's Fae. She goes seeking death, having no hope. Pity filled his heart and great wonder... And suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. He sees Eowyn facing off against this thing and recognizes her not as being beautiful, not as being unusual. He's certainly not writing to protect her because she is a woman. He's writing to protect her or, or, or standing to protect her. I, I'm using writing metaphorically there, which is confusing because we're talking about the Rohirrim so much. He's, he's standing to protect her. He's taking action to protect her and to assist her simply because she ought not to be alone. She ought not to be fey. Hobbits have no time for being fey, for believing that death is inevitable, and certainly not for seeking it. The face of one that goes seeking death, having no hope, pity filled his heart and great wonder. He's awed by her and pities her simultaneously. We're, we're speaking to two of the most powerful emotions that we can possibly experience in The Lord of the Rings. Suddenly the slow-kindled courage of his race awoke. It takes a long time for a hobbit to be roused. But when a hobbit is roused, you had better look out. And Mary has, uh, Mary Attic has just been roused here. He clenched his hand. She should not die so fair, so desperate. At least she would not die alone, unaided. And so Mary launches himself into the fight. Mary versus the witch king of Angmar, ladies and gentlemen. This is how we do it. The face of their enemy was not turned towards them, but still he hardly dared to move, dreading lest the deadly eyes should fall on him. Slowly, slowly he began to crawl aside, but the black captain, in doubt and malice intent, uh, in doubt and malice intent upon the woman before him, heeded him no more than a worm in the mud. Suddenly the great beast beat its hideous wings, and the wind of them was foul. Again it leapt into the air, and then swiftly fell down upon Eowyn, shrieking, striking with beak and claw. But still she did not blanch. Maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair yet terrible, a swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder, and the hewn head fell like a stone. Backward she sprang as the huge shape crashed to ruin, vast wings outspread, crumpled on the earth, and with its fall the shadow passed away. A light fell about her, and her hair shone in the sunrise. Out of the wreck rose the black rider, tall and threatening, towering above her. With a cry of hatred that stung the very ears like venom, he let fall his mace. Her shield was shivered in many places, in many pieces, and her arm was broken. She stumbled to her knees. He bent over her like a cloud, and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. But suddenly he too stumbled forward with a cry of bitter pain, and his stroke went wide, driving into the ground. Mary's sword had stabbed him from behind, shearing through the black mantle and passing up beneath the hauberk had pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee. Eowyn! Eowyn! cried Mary. Then tottering, struggling up with her last strength, she drove her sword between crown and mantle as the great shoulders bowed before her. The sword broke sparkling into many shards. The crown rolled away with a clang. Eowyn fell forward upon her fallen foe. But lo! The mantle and hauberk were empty. Shapeless they lay now on the ground, torn and tumbled, and a cry went up into the shuddering air and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind, a voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of the world. So passes the Witch King of Angmar. Oh, and his sick ride, also the fell beast, just hit its head cloven from its body with one stroke from Eowyn here. This is fantastic. 
Still she did not blench, maiden of the Rohirrim, child of kings, slender but as a steel blade, fair yet terrible. And because we've been talking about Eowyn in the context of Professor Tolkien's gender politics, I suppose, uh, I want to kind of spend just a moment breaking this down because, again, I'm not sure that the focusing on her slenderness or her fairness is in any way specifically gendered here, right? Maiden of the Rohirrim. Well, she is a maiden of the Rohirrim. She's a shield maiden of the Rohirrim, right? This is calling back to what she was saying before. A shield maiden, not a dry nurse, right? A maiden of the Rohirrim. Child of kings, not daughter of kings. That's not gendered. Child of kings. Slender, yes, okay, but as a steel blade. She's slender like a sword. She's slender like a, like a knife. She is slender like someone who is ready to fight. She is lithe more than she is, you know feminine, I suppose, in this moment. Not to say that she isn't feminine in this moment. She absolutely is, but she's not specifically feminine. Like, we're not paying close attention to her feminine virtue or her beauty. Fair yet terrible. Fair yet terrible is echoing here the song of the Rohirrim as they ride down. This is a classic kind of Rohiric opposition here. Fair yet terrible. Here she is once more kind of embodying that song which rose up from the martial might of the Rohirrim that rode at the command of Theoden King. A swift stroke she dealt, skilled and deadly. The outstretched neck she clove asunder and the hewn head fell like a stone. The shadow passes, the light comes out, her hair shone in the sunrise, her Durnhelm, her secret helmet has now fallen away completely and she is Eowyn. She is in this moment as powerful as she will ever be. Out of the wreck rose the Black Rider. He's, he's charging her. He let fall his mace. Her shield is shattered. Her arm is broken. She falls. He bent over her like a cloud and his eyes glittered. He raised his mace to kill. And why doesn't he kill her? Because Mary's blade has found him. Mary's blade has pierced beneath the, uh, beneath the hauberk and pierced the sinew behind his mighty knee, causing him to stumble forward so that Eowyn can deliver the killing blow. The killing blow that shatters her blade as she drives it through the gap between mantle, like the, the shoulder piece of his robe, if you like, and the crown above. She drives it through where his face should be and kills him. No living man am I. No living man am I. Which kind of prompts the question, who kills the Witch King? We are going to get in just a moment. In fact, I'll probably save the discussion of this until we get to the slide, which we may not do until next week. I'm looking at, yes, yeah. Senator Claus asking perfectly here. The question is, did she really deliver the killing blow or would Mary's wound have been enough? Yes, this is, uh, this is a very, very powerful question. Um, yeah, Jackie calling out fair and terrible. These words are used to describe so many great people in Tolkien's works. Great with a capital G, that is. And Shane notes elves especially. Yes, elves especially. Absolutely. That opposition is by no means unique to the Rohirrim, but has been used most recently to describe their, uh, their assault here upon the Palinor. So in a couple of slides time, we're going to talk about Mary's sword. We're going to talk about the fate of the sword that he brought from the Barrowdans, right? The sword that was given to him by Tom Bombadil after their encounter at the Barrowdans. The sword that he has worn at his hip throughout this entire adventure. The sword that came from the Barrows of Cardolan, right? Remember, this is the, the barrow that is raised to honor the dead who fought against the Witch King of Angmar that then fell to the, the malign influence and the, the dark spirits that were sent forth by the Witch King of Angmar. These blades were forged by those who specifically opposed this dude, this is the line that we get. We'll talk about this more fully, as I say, in a couple of slides time. But the line that we get associated with Mary's sword, no other blade, though not though mightier hands had wielded it, would have dealt that foe so, uh, excuse me, would have dealt that foe a wound so bitter, cleaving the undead flesh, breaking the spell that knit his unseen sinews to his will. There is clearly a powerful effect here. It's not a distraction. It's not like 
it's not just the physical assault upon his person, the unexpected physical assault. He's not brought low by his arrogance in this moment, right? It's not that he has dismissed Mary and Mary assaults him and he's thrown off balance and that gives Eowyn time to kill him, to deliver the killing blow. Mary actually does some real good. No other blade, not though mightier hands had wielded it, could have dealt that foe a wound so bitter. No blade could have done it, not, regardless, right? You give any other sword to Aragorn. If Aragorn had shown up with Anduril and took a swing at, at the Witch King of Angmar, it wouldn't have been so bitter a, a wound to the Witch King at this point. Cleaving the undead flesh, breaking the spell that knit his unseen sinews to his will. We're going to get that, as I say, in just a couple slides time. In the uh, eighth volume of the history of Middle-earth, this uh, epic review of basically every word written by, the, by Professor Tolkien in the course of his career, edited and uh, collated by his son Christopher Tolkien, in the eighth volume, The War of the Ring, Christopher mentions a, uh, an early draft of a sequence with Gandalf, which doesn't make it to the actual book, in which Gandalf credits the death of the Witch King of Angmar, saying he was felled by a woman with the aid of a halfling, both of them working together. But we talked last time about the lack of specificity in Glorfindel's prophecy, right? That he's not going to be taken out by man. No blade of man shall fell him. No one knows what's going to happen to him, but no blade of man shall, <clears throat> excuse me, not by the hand of man shall he fall, is the actual, uh, the actual quote from, from Glorfindel. And that's true, because Eowyn is not a man, and nor is Mary. Right? You'll remember Pippin making that point when he gets to Minas Tirith in the first place. A man? A man? No, I'm a hobbit, right? I'm a completely different thing. Both Mary and Pippin, it's, uh, both Mary and Pippin, excuse me, both Mary and Eowyn, it seems to me, can lay claim to the slaying of the Witch King of Angmar. Certainly it is true that Eowyn delivers the killing blow, but the assist is absolutely vital, absolutely crucial. And it's completely fitting that we should rest the... The destruction of, of, you know, Sauron's right-hand man, of one of the great foes in all of Middle-earth, that we should place his destruction or the responsibility, the credit for his destruction at the feet, not just of a woman and a hobbit, right? But two people who, who found that force of will to act, that spectacular courage to act. Eowyn facing off against the Witch King of Angmar is one of the most heroic things in the entire book. She's spectacular. And Mary being moved by her fairness and her desperation and her fairness, right? Fairness and fairness together. Mary being moved in his hobbity fashion to take action. That is also one of the most courageous things that you're going to see, right? He clenches his hand. She should not die alone. He's going he's gonna to take action and aid her. And that's when we get the face of their enemy was not turned toward him, toward him, but still he hardly dared to move, dreading lest the dreadful eyes should fall on him. Slowly, slowly, he began to crawl aside. This is Mary taking action, right? This is Mary in his full measure of, of hobbit courage at that moment, just really quietly trying to creep around to behind the black captain. Uh, I mean, what more can we say about this amazing, amazing part of the book? I, I think that Tolkien absolutely makes good on his implicit threat to, you know, revise Macbeth upward. This is a very good version of that prophecy. It's brilliantly ambiguous as it's introduced to us, as I mentioned in uh, in last week's reading. As it's introduced to us, it is ambiguous and nebulous enough that the ending when it comes is satisfying if it's Eowyn, it's satisfying if it's Mary, it's most satisfying to my reading in particular if it's Eowyn and Mary together, given the, the bond that they have forged in the ride from, from Edoras. 
I, I love all of the possible explanations of this, and it's an enormously satisfying, uh, an enormously satisfying moment here. A cry went up into the shuddering air and faded to a shrill wailing, passing with the wind. A voice bodiless and thin that died and was swallowed up and was never heard again in that age of the world. Beautifully done. Absolutely beautifully done. Um, let me see here as I catch up with the chat so we can talk a little bit. Yeah, you'd have to be pretty fey to take on the Witch King, says Jackie, and I'm inclined to agree. Yes, yes. Um, Nikki says, it makes me so sad and upset when they forget about Mary after the battle, especially given his role in the demise of the Witch King. Do you know how amazing Mary is? He's awfully, awfully amazing. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and yet it's not inappropriate, right? Mary has been concerned this entire time that he's going to be forgotten like baggage, that he's never going to make it into great songs, that he's never going to be able to, to honor his friends or honor his role or, or, or play his part. That has been his concern. And it's kind of like Bilbo, right? It's kind of like Bilbo all the way back at the Battle of Five Armies. It's kind of like Bilbo just being knocked unconscious while the battle happens around him and then waking when it's all over, waking when it's all too late. It's not not to say that Mary is is like Bilbo in that moment. Certainly Mary accomplishes a great deal more than Bilbo does, but that sudden sharp return into a hobbitish frame, for a moment, Mary finds himself in a Rohiric story. But only for a moment. And he can't stay there because that's not what he is. In exactly the same way as Pippin, mere moments from now is going to find himself caught up in a Gondorian story. And then we're going to get that sharp reset back to his his hobbitish nature. And of course, Frodo and Sam, at this moment, at this point in the narrative, are also going through a very different kind of story. But we'll get to them in a few chapters time. Yeah. Okay. Consciousness, says Becca, is a pretty low bar. True, right? Okay. He doesn't he doesn't pull a bill though. He doesn't pass out and miss the actual climactic action sequence of the whole movie. Um okay, let's do one more slide. Let's do one more slide, and then we're gonna get to you catastrophe next week. We're gonna say farewell to Theoden King. And there stood Mariadic the Hobbit in the midst of the slain, blinking like an owl in the daylight, for tears blinded him. And through a mist he looked on Eowyn's fair head as she lay and did not move, and he looked on the face of the king, fallen in the midst of his glory, for Snowmane in his agony had rolled away from him again, yet he was the bane of his master. Then Mary stooped and lifted his hand to kiss it, and lo, Theoden opened his eyes, and they were clear, and he spoke in a quiet voice, though laboured. Farewell, Master Holbitla, he said. My body is broken. I go to my father's, and even in their mighty company... I shall not now be ashamed. I felt the black serpent, a grim morn, and a glad day, and a golden sunset. Mary could not speak, but wept anew. Forgive me, Lord, he said at last, if I broke your command, and you'd have done no more in your service than to weep at our parting. The old king smiled. Grieve not. It is forgiven. The great heart will not be denied. Live now in blessedness, and when you sit in peace with your pipe, Think of me, for never now shall I sit with you in Methuselah as I promised, or listen to your herb law. He closed his eyes, and Mary bowed beside him. Presently he spoke again. Where is Eomer? For my eyes darken, and I would see him ere I go. He must be king after me, and I would send word to Eowyn. She, she would not have me leave her, and now I shall not see her again, dearer than daughter. Lord, Lord, began Mary brokenly. She is... But at that moment there was a great clamour, and all about them horns and trumpets were blowing. Mary looked round. He had forgotten the war and all the world beside, and many hours it seemed since the king rode to his fall, though in truth it was only a little while. But now he saw they were in danger of being caught in the very midst of the great battle that would soon be joined. 
Theoden dies in triumph. As Aragorn may well say, few men have won such a victory. Theoden has conquered the darkness that beset him, conquered despair and ridden out to glory, first at Isengard and then overcoming a second darkness, overcoming a greater fear, overcoming the host of Mordor itself, raising his standard and riding into battle like the heroes of old, like Aeorl from the north, right? He has absolutely fulfilled his role as king, as man of Rohan, as Rohan itself. Theoden has fulfilled his greatest purpose and now in this moment, his thoughts can turn to peace. His thoughts can turn to, well, to satisfaction, I suppose. My body is broken. I go to my father's and even in their mighty company, I shall not now be ashamed. I felt the black serpent, a grim morn and a glad day and a golden sunset. The day started grimly. It started in darkness, but as he rode forth, he brought the sun with him, the sun reflecting off of his shield, turning the grass green around the white feet of his steed, right? He is the herald of the returning sun here, here on the field of Pelennor, a grim morn and a glad day and a golden sunset. The light has now returned fully and the darkness has fled. The darkness has been vanquished. Mary could not speak, but wept, and you forgive me, Lord, if I broke your command, and yet have done no more in your service than to weep at our parting. We can speculate whether or not Mary is correct in that when we talk about the slaying of the witch king of Angmar, but it doesn't matter. Theoden doesn't need to know that. He doesn't need to know that Mary has actually accomplished anything in his service. That is not the point. The point is not what you achieve. The point is your spirit. The point is the 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 thing that motivates you, that, that fire that burns within you that drives you to take great action. Grieve not, it is forgiven. Great heart will not be denied. I can't be mad at you for breaking my command, Mary, because you have a great heart. Great heart will not be denied. Live now in blessedness. All is forgiven. And, and the formalization of, you know, it is forgiven. Live now in blessedness. Mary, of course, is technically an oathbreaker at this point. He has denied his king's instruction, which is complicated because Theoden has already freed him from service, but Mary hasn't freed himself from service. So technically, he's still kind of under the, the, the authority of Theoden here, and he rejects Theoden's command to stay behind and to stay safe. Live now in blessedness, Theoden says, formalizing that language. And when you sit in peace with your pipe, think of me, for never now shall I sit with you in Methuselah, as I promise, or listen to your herb lore. A moment of great intimacy and connection between Mary and Theoden King here. And then the turn. Where is Eomer? For my eyes darken and I would see him ere I go. He must be king after me and I would send word to Eowyn. She, she would not have me leave her. And now I shall not see her again, dearer than daughter. The power of that connection, of course, we've had Theoden referring to Eowyn as daughter and referring to Eomer as, as son at this point already in the book. But again, this is the formalization of it, right? Eomer is going to be king hereafter. There is going to be a king hereafter, right? The writers of Rohan shall not fall this day, let me tell you. And Eowyn to dearer than daughter. And Mary's about to tell him. He's, he's about to tell him that Eowyn is here, but apparently dead also. But he can't, because at that point, the war resumes, or at least Mary's awareness of the war resumes. The battle is not yet over. There is still a fight to be fought. Um, it's it's pretty powerful. Yes, yes. Um, are we? Yeah, it's elf dust and it's everywhere. I'm not crying. There's just a tree branch in my eye, says Erica. I know, I know. He dies in peace, says Becca, and that's not nothing, absolutely not. Yeah, Mariatic the Witch King Wounder returns to Mary, Mary the Hobbit, says Nikki. Yeah, it's it's 
It's astonishing. It's just an astonishing piece of work. Yeah. Theoden has offered many blessings in this chapter, observes Jackie. You're absolutely right, Jackie, right? He, you're so right. He is, God, he's just at his most kingly. Do we see anyone kinglier than Theoden? Well, yes, but he's the kingliest king that ever kinged. So, I mean, by comparison, he's still going to come out ahead. But yeah, Theoden... Since that moment of that, right, since that moment when he cries forth to the man of Rohan to ride a sword day, a red day, by, the, by that point, no one has been more Rohiric, no one has been more kingly, no one has been more Rohan than Theoden King. He dies as he should, he dies as he ought, and he wins his glory. It's just, just gorgeous, yeah. Brendan saying, I can't help but make the connections between Theoden and Denethor with how Theoden goes to war and dies in peace and the steward of Gondor does not go to fight and that will lead him to a harder end. Absolutely, right? That is one of the, the, the most important distinctions that is drawn between Theoden and Denethor. I mentioned this earlier when we're talking about Theoden riding out ahead of his, ahead of his force, right? Riding out not just ahead of his, his army itself. He's not just leading his army. He's riding out ahead of his own knights. He's riding out ahead of his own personal company, his own, his own guard here. He wants to be the first into battle because that is where the king belongs. Good kings in Tolkien lead from the front despite what Denethor said. Bad kings, Denethor, Sauron, don't lead from the front. They command, they bid others to do their work, which, like, you can understand why Denethor is doing this, right? You can delegate, you can absolutely delegate. But in that moment, when your, when your authority is needed most, when your authority is challenged most, when that, that overlap between king and nation is challenged outright, then the king must ride. Rohan must ride, so Theoden must ride. He is representative of Rohan in that moment. Right now, well, right now, of course, Denethor has already passed into darkness. But even prior to this, even when he knew this war was coming, no, I wear my sword when I hang out here in the Citadel and also when I sleep, though I don't sleep that much these days, no more than, you know, eight or nine hours and then a leisurely breakfast. But I'm usually in the office by 10. It'll be fine. Again, uh, I've got to catch myself with this, right? Because Theoden is so great and I'm being excessively critical of Denethor. That isn't entirely fair. We're going to talk more about Denethor, uh, obviously, in next week's reading. But you guys... That, I think, is going to do it. We are at time, which is actually perfect, because that means that, that we can get into Eomer next week. We can get into my favorite piece of Anglo-Saxon poetry in the entire book. We can get into that brief description of what happens to uh, to Mary's uh, barrow blade. Uh, we get the the brilliant intrusion of Prince Imrahil of Dol Amroth, right? It's, it's so good. And then the coming of the Corsairs and Eomer setting his banner and the greatest moment of catastrophe and just copious weeping, right? If you're feeling moved by this week's reading... Buckle up, Buttercup, because the worst is yet to come, by which I mean the best is yet to come. So that's all, all to look forward to next week. So next week, we will finish up Chapter 6, and we will launch into Chapter 7, which is a very short chapter, so I'm actually pretty optimistic that we can get through it. That will be the rest of the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, and then the Pyre of Denethor, that is next week, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, Friday, May the 3rd. Uh, sorry, that says Friday. It's not Friday, May the 3rd. It's Thursday, May the 3rd. I didn't correct my notes properly. Thursday, May the 3rd, next week. That's when we're going to get into it. Let's take a very quick look in the question bucket, shall we, before we wrap up here. Um, <laughs> Eve saying that was lovely. I'll just sit and wait for Excelsior to update now. Uh, there won't be a new Excelsior until tomorrow. Excelsior is, for those of you coming late to the Iron Back again, my uh, comic book podcast that I produce with Sarah Kate Pizant and Vinton Bain over at Common Room Radio. Uh, it's a super fun podcast. Uh, this weekend, we actually have two podcasts going up. We will have our commentary track for Thor Ragnarok, uh, the last part of our Road to Infinity War commentary series, will be going up tomorrow evening, that's Saturday evening. And then on Monday at noon, we will be dropping our discussion of Infinity War. Actually, you know what? I'm going to have that edited early. I may just talk to Sarah and Vinton about releasing that early because we recorded it this afternoon right after seeing Marvel's Avengers Infinity War 
no spoilers. No spoilers on Infinity War, you guys. But if you're at all interested in the MCU and you've been keeping up with the movies, you should definitely go and see it. That's what I should say. Uh, let me see here. Angela asking... Um, Angela asking here in the, the chat bucket. Angela, by the way, it's great to have you back. I'm glad that everything is going well. We missed you desperately while you were dealing with your health troubles. We're very, very glad and grateful to have you back among us once again. Best wishes to you for a speedy, speedy recovery in the houses of healing. I hope that you'll uh, have a similar experience to Eowyn and the others in just a couple of chapters' time. Uh, Angela writes, when Gandalf says you cannot enter here, did this statement hold the same power and command as when he told the Balrog you cannot pass? Is he prepared for another possibly fatal confrontation? Did he know the dawn was coming? <sighs> Did he know the dawn was coming? No. I don't believe that he did. Was he prepared for another fatal confrontation? Yeah. Yeah. As he says to Denethor earlier, when Denethor speculates somewhat snidely that perhaps Gandalf withdrew from the field because he feared that he would be outmatched, and Gandalf, Pippin is ready. He's like, ah, oh, God, did you just say that to Gandalf? We're going to throw down now. I've seen this white wizard. I know what's up. And Gandalf says, ah, maybe. Actually, maybe. Like, it wouldn't have been foolish to do so. I don't know what's going to happen. Our trial of strength does not yet come. But there's certainly ambiguity there, right? He knows the trial of strength is coming. He knows that he will be tested against the Witch King of Angmar, or I guess believes that he will be tested against the Witch King of Angmar at some point. But he's not confident about his success. So does he believe in that moment as he's facing off against the Lord of the Nazgul at the gates of Minas Tirith proper? Does he believe that he could fall? Yeah, I think he probably does. I think he probably does. Does his language there, you cannot enter here, have the same power of command as when he's addressing the, the Balrog in Khazad-dûm? <laughs> I'm really hesitant about that, honestly. I'm really hesitant about it. I don't think that it does, but then I'm not sure that you cannot pass has that power of command either, right? I'm not sure that this is Gandalf in prophetic mode, and I'm certainly not sure that this is Gandalf in spellcasting mode. I think this is Gandalf in intimidatory mode. Perhaps we can circle back around to this and actually look very carefully at the language that is used and the way that these events are described. Um... Do I think that he is capable of preventing the Witch King of Angmar from entering Minas Tirith? Maybe, maybe, but it would be a sore trial of his strength and yes, could be ultimately fatal too. But that's not going to stop him from doing it. It's not going to stop him from fulfilling his purpose. And he holds the Witch King at the gate for long enough. He holds them there long enough, uh, holds him there long enough for the Riders of Rohan to appear. And it is the coming of the Riders of Rohan that causes the Witch King to flee, to, to step back, to think about his other weapons and to go and get his, his fell beast and take to the air, right? So Gandalf's role there is vital, I, I don't know exactly what is in his head at that moment. I, I can't speculate, I think, about what exactly Gandalf is feeling in that moment, but it is a really, really interesting thought. Yeah. Um, yes, good, good. Uh, let me see. Oh, wow. Eve's saying that uh, Eve's saying that she has a beautiful Blu-ray of Labyrinth from a couple of years ago. I was thrilled to discover that my local movie theater here in Oklahoma City is actually doing a Labyrinth retrospective this coming like Saturday, Sunday, uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I think. So at some point in the course of the next four or five days, I'm actually going to take time to go and see Labyrinth on the big screen because I love that movie. I did a, a Point North one shot about that movie just a little while ago and seeing it in the movie theater with a crowd of people who have gone to see Labyrinth on a Monday night. I'm super into that. So uh, yes, um, 
probably Sunday night, actually, because I guess I have I have podcast commitments Monday and Tuesday. So I guess it's going to have to be Sunday night by default. But that's going to be an absolute blast. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Becca saying, my gosh, I'm jealous. I want Labyrinth on the big screen. Yeah, you know, we all do, I think. A really, really great movie. Okay. Uh, let me see here. Another question from Angela here. Uh, oh, Shane has a question here. Today, when Beat the Witch King did Mary's Numenorian Blade do it first, did they work in concert? I think we've discussed that a little bit. Well, as I say, we'll talk a little more about the uh, about the blade later. Um, Angela asking, if Mary is more Gondorian and Pip Rohiric, aren't they placed well to develop or mature these other traits within themselves? Gondor anchors Pip and Rohan sparks Mary's fire. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't hate that, actually, right? I don't hate the idea that because... Mary has more Gondorian inclination, naturally speaking, we've talked about this in a couple of previous sessions now, I think, that because Mary has more innately Gondorian inclinations, that actually giving him the this anchor to the Rohirrim is is more powerful, right? Because it allows him to explore a part of himself that is less innate, right? It's just more of a challenge and more of a pull to him. He's learning about adventure and and the ride and the sacrifice in the wide world and this this fury and berserker fire of the Rohirrim like yeah I could see that actually and then of course Pip being more naturally Rohiric giving you know uh, Peregrine son of Paladin this very kind of austere Gondorian existence where he's learning less about adventure and more about just wow just grim tragedy right that is that is what Pippin is facing right now isn't just the the host of Mordor isn't just the siege isn't just like the physical danger in which he finds himself but the deepest lamentation and tragedy and and despair yes facing Pippin with despair is certainly a fascinating combination right he's he's much more He's much further from despair naturally and innately, I suppose, than Mary, though both are clearly very far from despair under normal circumstances. But yeah, Angela, that's a really, really good thought. On that thought, I'm afraid, you guys, we must wrap it up. I think that is going to do it. I hope you all have a wonderful week. We will be back, as I say, next Thursday evening, 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central, here for episode 61 of There and Back Again, where we will conclude the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, in which I will weep. I'm going to just... I'm going to just at least get a little misty-eyed when I start talking about uh, start talking about Aomer and start talking about the coming of the Corsairs and the Black Fleet and this moment of brilliant, staggering new catastrophe. I can't exaggerate how much I love this part of the book and how eager I am to talk about it. So we will do all of that next week, along probably with the Pyre of Denethor. We're going to give it a solid, a solid whack to try to get through to the end of the Pyre of Denethor, which is, as I say, a very short chapter. Then we'll pick up the following week with the Houses of the Healing and, and really get ready for the end of this part of the book and the transition back to Frodo and Sam, which is going to be enormously powerful when we get to it. Guys, thank you all so, so much for joining me this week. I will talk to you all again very soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!